This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org. You're listening to audio from one of our third Thursday webinars on Parkinson's research. In these webinars, expert panelists and people with Parkinson's discuss aspects of the disease and the foundation's work to speed medical breakthroughs. Learn more about the third Thursday webinars at michaeljfox.org slash webinars. Thanks for listening. Hello, everyone. I'm Dave Iverson, contributing editor at the Michael J. Fox Foundation for Parkinson's Research and the moderator of our continuing series of webinars on Parkinson's disease, our third Thursday series. And today we are picking up a topic that is so prevalent in Parkinson's disease um, and so complicated to sort through as well, and that's how to sleep better uh, with Parkinson's disease. So here's what we're going to try to cover on today's um, webinar talk about a variety, and there really are, as, as we'll hear, a variety of sleep disorders that are associated uh, with Parkinson's uh, disease. We're going to talk some about where that comes from. Is that something that comes from the disease itself, or is it a side effect of various uh, medications, or both, or what are the roots of the problem, and, and what are these various uh, difficulties that, that we need to do a better job of being able to contend with? Talk some then about the, the ways to, to treat them, uh, from changes in medication to various sort of lifestyle changes one can make to contend with the sleep problems in Parkinson's. And then we'll also spend some time talking about um, all of the research that's going on um, in this area as we seek to find better ways to contend with sleep issues in Parkinson's disease. Let's go ahead and, and uh, meet the people who will be joining us on our, our conversation today. Uh, first up is Michael Sweet. Um, Michael is someone who was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease in 2008. He's a retired healthcare executive uh, living in California, and Michael has had to contend with many of the challenges that we're going to be talking about today. He's also an active uh, volunteer with the Michael J. Fox Foundation. Michael, thanks so much for being part of our conversation today. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to have you join us. Joining us, too, is Dr. Carlos Singer. Uh, Dr. Singer is Professor of Neurology and Director of the Division of Parkinson's Disease and Movement Disorders at the University of Miami, where he sees many patients who contend with some of these challenges. Dr. Singer, welcome. Thanks for being part of our, our conversation. Pleasure being here. And joining us, too, is Dr. Alex Vedenovich. Uh, Dr. Vedenovich is an Associate Professor of Neurology at the Harvard Medical School and also Director of the Program on Sleep, uh, Circadian Biology, and Neurodegeneration at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. Dr. Vedenovich, thanks as well for being part of our, our talk today. Th thank you, Dave. Uh, my pleasure to, to be with you and other colleagues in the call. Great. All right, let's get started with all of the things that we, uh, we want to talk about in terms of the sleep problems that are associated with Parkinson's. And we're going to begin with a kind of grid that we're going to put on the screen here that, that shows the wide variety of these uh, issues and, and problems that one has to contend with often in Parkinson's disease. And before we dive into them in, in detail, um, Dr. Zdenovich, let me ask you first to, to just give us some sense of why this takes place. Um, is there something going on in the disease itself? We'll talk about some of the medication challenges and how they may pose issues too, but is this really part of Parkinson's disease? That is a great question, and um, um, short answer is absolutely yes. 
um, the the process that takes place um, um, in patients in in the brains of patients with Parkinson's disease uh, as disease progresses affects areas of the brain that are really keeper of our normal sleep wake cycle and um, as these areas of the brain are affected by the same disease process that causes stiffness or rigidity or falls. Um, these problems with sleep alertness emerge and um, and are very common in uh, in the PD population. And so, Dr. Singer, just as we have to be precise in treating the problems, the other problems that occur in Parkinson's disease, whether those are problems with movement or with sometimes with uh, non-motor symptoms, this is something too where we have to be precise in figuring out the specific problem and treating it accordingly. So all these things we see on the screen on the screen right now, it sounds like we have to treat those then in a, in a different way depending on what the problem is because it's part of the disease. That's correct. Uh, you, you have to define what is the, uh, the primary symptom. Of course, the first, uh, this slide shows insomnia, which really is a a very general term, and underneath it is a variety of possibilities, a rich number of possibilities. So just uh, uh, the conversation may start, in fact, with a complaint that I can't sleep or I cannot stay asleep, and that will bring in a cascade of possibilities and questions in our mind to clarify so that we can help the person sleep better. All right. So let's then take tackle these kind of one at a time as we go through this, and we'll talk as we go through about how we can tend with that. And Michael, Michael Sweet, let me bring you into our conversation as someone who has had to deal with these issues in your in your uh, time with Parkinson's disease, and also in your time before you were officially diagnosed. So let's start actually in the middle of the page here with REM behavior disorder, which is this rapid eye movement. Uh, issue that occurs and when you start to act out your dreams, because that occurred to you in, in your experience actually before you were diagnosed with Parkinson's, and that's often the case. Describe a little bit about what you experienced, Mike, and then we'll hear from Dr. Singer and Dr. Videnovich about, about their view on this particular problem in Parkinson's. You know, before diagnosis of Parkinson's, I used to uh, I mean, I worked quite a, quite a few hours, so I thought it was a lot work-related, but I would, once I got to sleep, it was, I, and I, I don't remember doing a lot of it. I, I remember having some dreams, but I, I would get up and start pacing the room. Um, I would start, uh, the one that scared my wife the most was, uh, I'd like sit up and act like I was almost punching somebody and screaming and it's just it, nothing, you know, she could describe to me as just incoherent screaming. Like I was almost speaking a different language, she said. Um, but it, the nights that I have that, it wasn't a consistent every single night, but the nights I had it, I would wake up the next day and just feel like I ran a marathon or something. And wow. I mean, it, it and, just, it was a nightmare. And, and Michael, when did this first occur? A number of years before diagnosis? Uh, it actually, the first uh, episodes when I actually went to the doctor for it was 
mid-2005, so about three years prior to my diagnosis. And I'm sure, Dr. Vadinovich and Singer, this, this sounds um, familiar to you. First, Dr. Vadinovich, um, what's going on, um, in, do we think, in this circumstance? And, and why might it predate an actual Parkinson's diagnosis? So this is a very common story that we hear from our patients with Parkinson's disease. What happens in this disease is actually when, when, a patient enter, when patients enter this sleep stage that is called REM sleep, right? There, our sleep is divided into REM and non-REM sleep. So when patients who have this disorder enter their REM sleep, they lose their muscle paralysis that is normally present during this stage of sleep. And um, um, also what happens that in this REM sleep in patients who have RBD, there are frequent dreams that are very, very aggressive dreams, dreams with a very negative emotional connotation. Patients feel threatened. They are either being a victim of an aggressor or they are aggressor themselves themselves, or they are trying to escape a fire in their dream. And then you can imagine when you combine this loss of paralysis and these very bad dreams, how patients can move and they start acting out their dreams. And that's what Michael describes, you know, one, on one night when he sit up in the bed and started to punch the pillow, he was probably fighting with someone in, in his dreams at the moment being fully asleep. And um, um, this link between this disorder and the Parkinson's disease has been established approximately 25, 30 years ago. And um, we don't really know why does, it, why does it happen, right? But we really certainly, why is it that it's so linked with Parkinson's disease, this specific sleep disorder? But we certainly understand that the patients who have only this sleep disorder are at a higher risk of developing either Parkinson's disease or some of the related disorders. So, and of course, that's indeed what happened with Michael. And, and Dr. Singer, as Dr. Vedenovich was describing, normally in sleep we have this, as he described it, almost a kind of paralysis that keeps you from acting out these things. Something happens that, that discounts that in, in this sort of experience. When someone comes in then and tells you a story like Michael's, um, how do you approach it? What is it that you try to figure out in, as, as a way of beginning to deal with that problem? I, uh, of course, uh, ask for the, as much detail as possible as to the specific uh, episode or episodes that the patient can relate. The more it is in the area of uh, vivid dreams, actual dreams uh, that the patient recalls, uh, then the more I feel I am in the area of REM behavior disorder, which is the time that most dreams occur. Uh, I then want to know if, as a result of this, one, of, one or all of the next three things may be happening. One, it disrupts the sleep of the bed partner. Two, there is small or more than small injury to the bed partner. Three, there is small or more than small injury to the patient himself or herself, including the possibility that they uh, fell out of bed. And so in those situations, when you develop 
that inventory of problems. It sounds like your first concern is safety. So how do you what do you how do you begin to suggest ways to contend with the right. real dangers that can occur? Right. Uh, the uh, one thing that I would like to point out, and uh, there is for some patients, uh, it, it may not be the case for Michael, but for some cases, it brings up uh, the funny bone. It seems to be a subject of jocularity. The patient and the bed partner uh, joke a little bit about it because it's, quote, funny. And I gently point out to them that we're not talking about something that is really all that funny and that it has the potential for harm. And then, so my first order of business is to educate them as to what I believe is going on. Of course, there will be issues such as uh, there is a, a, a cycling of this uh, problem. So some people go through periods in which they have it and periods in which it gets quiet. And you can't predict those. There is also the issue of how frequently is it happening. And uh, depending on that, you may be dealing with situations that are very dramatic, that need attention right away. And others where at least you educate people to be vigilant about it and to let you know if things start occurring frequently. From my standpoint, I cannot predict if anything is going to happen the next night or if, is, if there's going to be the night that a bad punch will hurt the bad partner or a bad fall out of bed will result in a broken bone. On the other hand, it may, nothing may happen. So I let them know from the get-go that we have ways of treating this, both non-pharmacological and pharmacological. And Michael, what was your experience? How did your own physician uh, treat this, uh, perhaps after your diagnosis with Parkinson's or before? And, and how are you doing with this today? Uh, he, right at first, uh, you know, obviously put me on... Well, sent me for a sleep study, uh, number one, uh, and afterwards kind of started me on the variety of, uh, you know, different anxiety medications, uh, sleep medications that, you know, he also had uh, uh, started me on Requip, <clears throat> which I, of course, didn't understand because I didn't have a diagnosis of Parkinson's at the time. So I wasn't kind of understanding the whole what I was doing. I just did what the doctor told me to. Um, but it it seemed as my Parkinson's progressed um, and I got official diagnosis, the RBD aspect of things kind of fell by the wayside but insomnia, sleep apnea, those uh, issues have arose uh, since. And, I mean, I'm doing a lot better now. My my main issue is just now, today, uh, falling asleep and actually staying asleep. Uh, it's, for instance, last night I went to bed at 1, fell asleep about 1.30 and woke up at 4.15. So and it, it's right. kind of been that way, that way ever since. 
And we'll we'll get into those other more general problems in, in just a moment, and we can talk more about RBD over the course of our hour as well. But let me pose one more question about this before we begin to, to tackle some of these other topics. Dr. Vodinovich, um, Michael mentioned taking uh, Requip, which is one of the dopamine agonists. Um, he's also said that it's diminished some over time. We heard Dr. Singer very clearly outline some of the safety uh, concerns that are in play here. How do you contend with this? Are there safety precautions that you recommend? And are there medications that can specifically help someone with RBD? I think that I completely agree with Dr. Singer. I think that um, safety is our number one priority. And um, I really start with educating patients about this disease. A lot of them will not uh, remember their dreams, will not even remember if they woke up and tried to punch their bed partner or knock the lamp from the side table, et cetera. Um, so potential for injuries is enormous, and therefore I suggest that patients make their sleep environment as safe as possible, which may even include padding of their sharp edges of a nightstands and removing sharp lamps and even putting sometimes pillows on the floor in a case if they fall out of the bed that they don't uh, harm themselves. So everything starts with education, safety, precautions are next. When it comes to the pharmacotherapy, which is very frequently needed in this population and which I initiate pretty much in any patient that I diagnose with REM sleep behavior disorder, I think there are two main options. One would either go with the treatment of melatonin which is basically naturally produced a sleep hormone, which can be purchased over the counter and which is very effective in treating this REM sleep behavior disorder. Or um, some colleagues will prefer to start with an anxiety class of drug that is called benzodiazepine. Benzodiazepines and, and clonazepam and clonipin is especially frequently prescribed medication within that class. Um, of, of medications. And uh, um, I think these are two main, states, main treatments for this disease. And um, the challenge begins with either of these or a combination of them does not provide substantial relief because other medications, as we know now, are not very effective in treating these symptoms. A couple of questions have already come in on this topic, and let's go ahead and take them now before we move on to some of the other sleep issues. Jerry asked the question, Dr. Singer, um, how can I wake up my bed partner during one of these night terror episodes? I guess I would add to Jerry's question whether or not you should wake up your partner during one of these episodes. Uh, I think, uh, yes, for them, uh, interestingly enough, uh, mo most of the time, I do believe this uh, this happens. In fact, that the bed partner uh, wakes up the patient. I think there is no harm with that. Uh, uh, actually, uh, uh, it it will uh, have the patient uh, pay attention to the symptom that, in fact, something is happening that's beyond his or her control. So it's okay from my standpoint that the patient be awakened by the bed partner. And Dr. Vodinovich, another question about whether or not there are any um, risks with melatonin, since that's the, sounds like that's your first uh, attack, the first attack that you take with this. Is that, I know there are lots of concerns about sleep medication. Is melatonin, because it is a naturally occurring substance, the one that would pose the least risk? 
that's an excellent question. Melatonin is in generally very well tolerated. It is kind of can consider being a sleeping pill, but it's very distinct from other sleeping pills of types of Ambien and similar medications. So in general, it is very well tolerated. The doses we use is three milligrams, six milligrams, nine milligrams. When we get into the doses that are higher than 10 milligrams, we should pay a little bit more attention. There is some potential for morning residual drowsiness for some patients who take melatonin, and that may unfortunately be a rate, uh, um, that may be a limiting step for the use of this drug. And very rarely on this, uh, but, but worth in noticing it, that some patients may feel a little bit confused, disorientated, especially if they are on a higher doses of medication. And it is my first line choice because I think when I compare it with clonazepam, the chance for sedation and drowsiness and negative cognitive effects is much less with melatonin. And that's why I use it as the first line agent. All right, thank you. Um, we'll come back if there are additional questions from our audience about uh, REM behavior disorder, but let's get to some of our other uh, sleep issues that happen in Parkinson's. And we'll tackle the next one on our, our grid here, which is rec restless leg syndrome. Um, First, Dr. Singer, just a, a brief description of, of, of what it is, and we'll hear a little bit about Michael's experience with this because he's, he's dealt with this as well. What exactly is RLS? So the, the legs uh, are the ones that are involved, as the name uh, states. It is by the, It has to be a disorder that starts at night, not during the daytime. It has to be linked to immobility, and it has to be relieved by moving the legs, be it stretching or getting out of bed. The sensation itself that uh, makes the person uncomfortable when they're lying in bed is very varied. It can be described in a number of ways, including numbness, uh, creepy crawlies, or it can be downright painful. So it's very variable. So you have the abnormal sensation, and then these circumstances under which the abnormal sensation occurs. Nighttime first, uh, uh, the need to move, and a relief in moving with stretching or getting out of bed in a relationship with immobility. It is when you're lying down and about ready to go to sleep, for example. Later on, it starts uh, uh, spilling over during the daytime. So some people may get these symptoms, say, if they're sitting for a long time, as in a cinema. But by definition, it starts at night. And Mike, I'm, I'm sure this sounds uh, familiar to you. Describe briefly what your experience was uh, with this and, and what kind of approach you took to contend with it. Uh, exactly as he described it. It started out mild, um, well, to me mild, as little creepy crawlies. Uh, just it felt like there were, uh, best way I can describe it, bugs inside my legs that were running up and down uh, my right leg. And I had to you know, get up, move it around, and it became, as it progressed, it became almost like somebody had uh, just a group of needles and was constantly stabbing it into my leg, and it got to the point it was 
disrupting, you know, even my marriage. Uh, my wife and I, she, me constantly moving my legs and getting up and out of bed and back into bed. She was like, you got to go sleep in the other room. Uh, but again, that's where my uh, movement disorder specialist, he had prescribed me a combination of Cinemet and Requip uh, after he uh, had tried Wellbutrin, and that actually exacerbated the symptoms. Um, but once I went on the Cinemet and Requip combination, it I still had it, but it was tolerable to the point that it wasn't disrupting my wife's sleep. And that was more of my concern than anything else was her ability to get to sleep because I knew I was going to have to deal with the issue. Right. And it's such a good point that you referenced that. I think, Mike, that the, one of the, one of the uh, very difficult things about these sleep problems is that they don't just affect you. They, they affect your bed partner as well. So it becomes a kind of family um, experience. Um, and, and Michael, if, if I could, as we go forward over the hour, a couple of people have said they're having a bit of a hard time hearing you. So if you can speak a little bit um, uh, louder um, when, we, when we come to you next, um, that would be great. Sure. People are eager to hear what your experience is and, and how you can, uh, how you've dealt with these things. Um, Dr. Videnovich, um, Mike, Michael mentioned um, the use of Requip in particular, one of the dopamine agonists. Is that the, the medication that is most frequently prescribed um, to contend with restless leg syndrome? Uh, uh, Rapinural is frequently prescribed for restless leg syndrome as well as the, uh, other two medications that are in the same class, um, such as erotigotine and um, pramipexol. Uh, these medicines are known as a dopamine agonists, are frequently used for the treatment of restless leg syndrome. There are several other medications that one should consider in the treatment of this disease. And um, whenever one uh, with RLS uh, is treated with a dopaminergic medication, such as dopamine agonist, there is a risk that with um, um, as that treatment progresses that um, um, there is a potential that the symptoms can start to develop earlier during the evening and into the day hours, daylight hours. This is phenomenon which is known as an augmentation, sometimes very challenging to treat. And therefore, there is a trend nowadays to try to avoid treatment of RLS initially with the dopaminergic therapies and some other medications as an neurontin. Um, or um, or pregabalin uh, may be really good in terms of mitigating or reducing the risk for development of that um, um, annoying augmentations that can happen. All right. We're going to tackle next some of the other problems that occur, including insomnia and daytime sleepiness. And by way of getting to that, um, let's let's look at some of the the uh, specific causes of of some of those uh, things that make people wake up and have a hard time sleeping, or in turn uh, have daytime sleepiness issues. And we're putting up on the screen now some of the reasons uh, why people have a hard time getting to sleep, or sometimes have a hard time um, staying awake. Um, we see at the top of the list. Um, something that's very common in Parkinson's disease, which is the need to urinate uh, frequently because part of what happens in the disease are these 
problems with what's known as the autonomic uh, system, the automatic functions in the body sometimes go a bit awry. Um, Dr. Singer, first on, on this, um, how, what's your recommendation? If someone says, I'm getting up six times a night because I have to go to the bathroom, what do you say? It, the, uh, so how can I put it? The, the frequent urination, by the way, is also a problem that occurs uh, during the day, but certainly nighttime is a particular problem uh, as uh, you have to, it disrupts your sleep and it also uh, raises the risk for falling because you find yourself in the need to go to the bathroom and at night when your defenses are lower, you're somewhat sleepy. So everything kind of uh, can uh, kind of escalate. Uh, the other problem is those patients with Parkinson who have uh, freezing of gait. Uh, it's uh, problematic enough to have freezing of gait when you try to normally walk. Now you, you freeze and you can't even get to the bathroom on time. So there's a lot of drama at night. And what part of the drama is this frequent urination. Now, frequent urination at night has a name. It's nocturia. And this problem, uh, from a conservative standpoint, if one tries not to use medications, oh, there are very few things you can do. Uh, one of them is to tell people not to uh, uh, indulge in too much liquids at night, which, of course, uh, uh, brings the paradox that, on the other hand, you do tell people that they need to drink because Parkinson people have constipation. So... But at nighttime, it may not be a good idea to to drink a lot. Uh, maybe limit how much you drink after dinner. And uh, but then, if it's more of a problem, then you all you have is medications, or in the more extreme cases, uh, uh, depends the uh, uh, adult diapers. So uh, when it comes to medications. There are a variety of bladder relaxers that can be used, and they can. They are uh, most of them are what we call uh, uh, anticholinergics. Uh, without trying to give, uh, you know, there's a whole number of them. One of them, for example, is oxybutynin. Uh, Tolteridine is another one. Uh, they go by a variety of other names. Uh, there is a um, uh, uh, Vesicare, for example, which is sulficenazine. So the, all of these relax the bladder, and they will decrease the urge. I want to caution that regardless of the publicity that they tend to be restricted to the bladder, we are all aware that uh, they may do uh, a number on the memory mechanisms. So we're constantly balancing how much to give at night, and to what extent we may be having an effect on memory. In general, these drugs, in general, are not supposed to be entering the brain. But we all have our, the cases where we feel this may not have been the case. There so is also recently a drug, uh, I, I'm sorry, I forgot to mention, recently a drug has been approved, which is the antidiuretic hormone in the form of a tablet. 
that can also be used at night. Uh, seems uh, it is effective. I've I've tried it uh, on just a very small number of people, and it does seem to work. Let me ask um, two things just to try to clarify. When you say medications to relax the bladder, to me, that almost sounds like it would make your bladder act more frequently, that, it, that you'd go that much more. But what you're saying is it relaxes the bladder so it decreases the urge. It, it, that's right? It, that is correct. It, that is a it's, a, it's an irritative bladder. It's the way you, you, you try to I calm see. down because it's, it's an unruly bladder. It's sending signals when it shouldn't be. Okay, got it. And and on the question of these, and this is where it can get so complicated, Dr. Videnovich, as, as Dr. Singer is suggesting, there are these medications that you could take to re- reduce the, the urge to, to urinate frequently, but that may, that may pose some risk uh, cognitively. And of course, as we all know, in Parkinson's now, that's a, that's a significant concern, the, the long-term cognitive issues in Parkinson's disease. What's your, what's your take on the sort of um, pluses and minuses, the benefits and risks of, of that when it comes to cognitive concerns in particular? Um, well, I, I think, you know, that one must weigh benefits and, and risks, as you just said. It is, um, um, in, in the cases of a very complex and problematic nocturia, I rely on my colleagues from from urology service. And I, I send my patients, um, I'm relatively lenient to sending them to see colleagues from urology because um, um, the choice of these drugs may be, um, may be a really well guided by a urologist. And we also want to rule out some hypertrophy of the prostate gland that can be causing this without really uh, being a consequence of Parkinson's disease and autonomic dysfunction as well. Um, um, I think that is waking up at night to urinate, you know, if patients go to the bathrooms, you know, that, that's really the, the, the most damning and, and uh, um, potentially dangerous moment, right? Because you have patients with Parkinson's disease who don't take medications overnight frequently, who are going to wake up, go to urinate, be very stiff and rigid in a dark environment, predispose themselves to falls. And therefore, uh, really, the, the risk-benefit ratio here needs to be considered, like for any other therapy. I don't think this is any different. Yeah, no, well put. It is such a complex equation, and you have to make, sometimes weigh immediate risk, as you're suggesting, if you're falling in particular, versus perhaps long-term risk with something like um, cognitive um, concerns. Let's talk a little bit now about our, our next issue and, and, and bring Michael back into our conversation, because one of the things that wakes you and keeps you awake at night, Michael, as I understand it, is sometimes a pain and discomfort. Can you describe what it is that you experience? It, the pain that I find uh, that I have is a lot in my hips um, and my just generalized, it's almost like a cramping in the leg, but not that not a Charlie horse type of a cramp. It's just my muscles get so tight in my right leg that it's just uncomfortable. I can't, if I straighten it, I have to have it completely straight uh, for it to have any relief. Uh, And the only way I can do that is if I'm laying on my back. But when I'm laying on my back, then both my hips feel like they're wanting to almost separate. So it's kind of this back and forth, uh, my wife says I might as well just be a rolling pin uh, because I just roll there for a couple hours. 
uh, yeah. or in that, you know, and I'll, I'll get up to try and walk around a little bit, uh, and unfortunately go to the bathroom. Um, but the, my biggest issue is, is a lot of the, this hip pain that I have that un, unfortunately this date, I still haven't had any answers to. Hmm. Dr. Singer, to, to you on, on this, when people complain of, of pain or, or rigidity during the night, and that's something that wakes them up or keeps them from sleeping well, what do you, what do you suggest? I suspect uh, what's happening is that the patient may be having uh, the dopamine level in the brain may be low. And I think that's what's causing the problem in many cases. Uh, the uh, uh, the last pill may have been of let's say of carbidopa levodopa may have been at 10 p.m. 11 p.m. and by 2 a.m. 3 a.m. Uh, the tank may be low, and when the tank is low, it will be as it can be associated with pain and discomfort. There is no doubt about it. And perhaps enhanced more at night than during the daytime. That would be the main thing, I think. Uh, actually, I have a hard time thinking of anything else. Of course, restless leg syndrome can also be painful and can also wake somebody up uh, at night. But as a rule, it's more of a problem with initiating sleep. I w was wondering what my my colleague and friend Alex thinks about the, this particular question. This disability from this um, being stiffened uh, at night, overnight, is a, is a common trouble for patients with Parkinson's disease. And, and I would agree that this is probably related to low, um, it's related to rigidity that underlies that one of the main symptoms of the disease, right? And the problem is that during the daytime, that kind of gets addressed by medications that patients take, all right? And at night, you know, we usually routinely do not advise patients to take um, dopaminergic therapy. And this is one of the cases where if we really believe that there is a significant limited mobility overnight that may cause sleep interruptions and insomnia down the line, where I believe that there is a good way to intervene with, let's say, long extended release formulations of levodopa and see whether um, boosting those levels overnight may improve this mobility, mobility um, in the bed. Um, of course, with Parkinson's population, we are dealing also with the aging population. And um, with aging, there are a lot of other musculoskeletal problems and um, deformities and low back pain issues, etc. And I think you know that um, bone health and joint health needs to be addressed as well when, when, when discussing these issues that underline pain and crampy sensations and that our patients experience. And Dr. Vidinovich, one follow-up question. If part of the solution may be to have extended release or even take uh, a, a carbidopa pill right before you go to bed, perhaps even during the night. As I understand it, that can also be problematic if the problem is actually restless leg syndrome, which can be painful because that can exacerbate that, right? So this is one of these issues where it's really tricky and you have to try the best you can to identify 
what the specific problem is, because the solution for one may not be the solution for others. Is that right, Dr. Vodanovich? Um well, you know, I, I am not sure about the restless legs. I, in this particular scenario, I would not, I would not challenge having a restless legs because restless legs will respond favorably to levodopa. But you know okay. what can happen is that some patients, when they take these dopaminergic therapies late at night, may develop really vivid dreams or may get confused. And patients with the more advanced disease if they take more dopaminergic drugs, can develop hallucinations that can be problematic overnight. So whenever we initiate overnight dopaminergic therapy, we need to monitor for the contra effects, right? We need to monitor whether there may be confusion or disorientation or even hallucinations that emerge after we add an extra, extra dose medication, either at the bedtime or throughout the nighttime sometimes. Okay, thank you. Um, you know, there's so much to cover here, and I'm, I'm sorry to say that we're I'm gonna have to push on to, to more topics here, or we'll never get through all that we wanna get through in the next 17 minutes. Uh, so let's take up uh, the question of, of anxiety, another reason why people um, are wakeful at night. Mike, again, I know this is something that you've, you've contended with. Yeah, I have. Uh, it's I, I again, it, it's something that it arose back around the time my mother uh, was sick, and I found myself, and I still to this day do, when I go to bed and the lights go out and it's dark and it's time to go to sleep, it doesn't matter if it's a massive problem that, you know, something happened with one of my grandchildren or my children or... I might have tripped going up the stairs. Whatever the issue is, when it's dark, it's quiet, everything rolls through my head. And it could be something from this day. It could have been something from a year ago. And I, I just let it run. And I just, I almost start hyperventilating. Um, and then the more I think about the issue, you know, the less I can stop. And it just continues to the point, and this is what happened to me last night, that you know, I plan on going to bed at 9.30, and next thing I know, it's 1.15 in the morning, and it's then I'm afraid to take, you know, the a Xanax or a Clonopin, you know, whatever I have that's supposed to relieve that anxiety. Uh, I'm, I'm fearful then to take it that late at night because I have something to do today, and it it does give me that morning drowsiness, and it takes me a little bit longer to get myself going. Yeah. Dr. Singer, um, you've heard Mike describe so well the problem of anxiety and the corresponding problem, sometimes worried about taking an anti-anxiety medication and how that may affect him the next day. Um, your thoughts on contending with this particular issue? I think that if this is a problem that a patient has on a regular basis, then uh, meaning that almost every night uh, the patient can count on this kind of uh, sensation, then it needs to be addressed. Uh, and I don't see any other way but to address it with uh, medications. So one can use uh, certain uh, antidepressants that are also used as uh, sleeping aids. Uh, the two most frequent ones are trazodone and mirtazapine. Uh, 
Mirtazapine is also known by the brand name Remeron. Those will be things to be considered. Uh, there is, there, uh, it's unavoidable that we have to bring the, the benzodiazepines, which means uh, clonazepam or lorazepam or uh, 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 any of those, uh, uh, even diazepam, which is Valium. All of them are anti-anxiety agents, alprazolam which is Xanax, all of this would have to be considered. Now, of course, every patient is different, so uh, it has to be a process of uh, trial and error to try to figure out what's best uh, for the patient. I would like to point out one more thing about anxiety. Now, although it may not apply to Mike's case, is that anxiety can also be a symptom of low dopamine in, in, the, in that particular moment. So if somebody were to wake up in the middle of the night with anxiety, it is the equivalent to having woken up with a lot of rigidity. It is possible to have anxiety as a manifestation of off. I assume that's not the case here, as Mike takes his medications uh, perhaps right before he goes to bed, so perhaps it's not an off kind of anxiety, but I'm struck by his symptom. I, I think that it definitely requires a very uh, dedicated attention, maybe even, maybe even a sleep study. I don't necessarily send people for a lot of sleep studies, but this one may be one of those cases. You know, I'm, I'm struck also by all of our conversation throughout our, our hour today at how complicated this all is. And, and Dr. Vinenovich, I imagine there are some people listening to all of this and, and thinking, how in the world do you figure this out? How do you decipher what the problems are when it could be this, it could be that? If you treat this, it may not be the right thing. Um, is part of what you need to do to, to take really meticulous kind of uh, almost like a sleep diary or, or work with your partner to, to track all of this and have a really constant and open communication with your movement disorder specialist because it does seem um, very, very difficult to tease out what exactly is the right uh, course to, to follow. Dr. Bedenovich? So, so thank you, Dave, for this question. I think this is a really a home take message. You know, if anything we can, if anything I would tell to our, to our, to our audience today on this call is that sleep problems are really underdiagnosed by uh, health professionals and they are underreported by our patients. So it is absolutely critical that our patients take step back and think about their sleep, because frequently that's one part of their life that they don't think much about if they are worrying about the future with Parkinson's disease, tremors, falls, medication side effects, etc. But sleep is so critical, and patients who sleep well benefit, and their Parkinson's disease benefit the following day. The combat this, the way to combat this, the only way to do this is to talk to their health providers about their sleep, to have maybe dedicated clinic visit if needed to discuss their sleep habits. And, and there, this can really be help. This is really not a rocket science either. It is very complex. And as everything in life, if you devote enough attention to it, great improvements can be made. So I would encourage our patients and their caregivers and their bed partners to bring these issues to the attention of their medical providers 
And I think, you know, that's a necessary but also a great first step in improving their sleep. It's a great take-home message, and I, I really appreciate your, your putting it in that way, Dr. Videnovich. I'm going to um, move us on to some of the additional ways people can contend with, with some of the things that are, are uh, confronting us with these sleep issues and make sure that we also spend a little bit of time talking about some of the non-pharmacological uh, approaches that we can use with all of these, um, with all of these um, issues. So we see up on the screen now some general kind of good uh, principles that can help people sleep better at night whether that's when they exercise or when they nap, uh, avoiding uh, too much uh, television uh, right before you sleep, uh, avoiding caffeine. And these are all good principles that apply whether you have Parkinson's or not, I think, in terms of contending with, with uh, sleep challenges and making sure you, you uh, put yourself in the best frame of mind possible uh, before turning in, into bed. Um, I just wanted to make sure that we, we touch on, on, on these um, before we um, only focus on, on the pharmacological approaches. Dr. Videnovich, I know you, you in particular think that it's important to, to develop these kinds of, of good sleep habits, right? I think it's important for anyone. It's important for school-age kids. It's important for health professionals, college students. It's important for our um, more senior um, citizens, but also for patients with Parkinson's disease. This, this, is, a, this is a good thing for everyone's health. All right. Let's, uh, let's make sure that we um, uh, spend some time um, talking about some of the other uh, uh, questions that, that people have, and then we also want to spend a little bit of time um, talking about um, uh, some of the, the new research that, that's going on. Um, one of the questions that's, that's come in, Dr. Singer, has to do with daytime sleepiness, something we haven't talked about a lot. Mike, I know this is something that you've dealt with, too, feeling excessively sleepy during the day. Sometimes, Dr. Singer, this can have to do with um, one of the medications that people take with Parkinson's. I know I've had this experience, which is taking one of the dopamine agonists, which sometimes make you stay up a lot at night and you feel like you're being really busy and productive and even when you may not be, um, and you stay up a lot at night and then consequently you're then really tired during the day. Describe a little bit about um, that problem, which a, a number of people have, uh, have expressed as well and, and how, to, uh, how to face it. Dr. Singer? Sure, thank you. So uh, the uh, excessive sleepiness during the day could be the result of medications you take uh, during the day, or it could be the result of a medication you took last night, or it could be that there is something wrong in this. You have a bad type of, you know, a very disrupted sleep at night that makes you sleepy during the day. But all other things being equal, if we just think about excessive somnolence, meaning excessive sleepiness related to medications you take during the day, then the one we have the most experience with us causing this problem are the dopamine agonists, the three dopamine agonists, pramipexol, ropinerol, and the patch rotigotine. We consider those as the uh, main culprits in causing excessive sleepiness in a fair number of people. I must say that even uh, our uh, very favorite carbidopa, levodopa, can make some people sleepy. In some cases, makes them sleepy only for about uh, the first uh, number of minutes, maybe 15 minutes uh, of its onset of effect, and then 
it happily goes away. But with these longer-acting medications, such as the dopamine agonist, it can be a problem throughout the day. Where they, they So there is, everybody has a certain ceiling as far as dopamine agonists. They may help. They may, may ameliorate the symptoms of Parkinson. They may allow for the levodopa to be a bit smoother. But they will, I always am searching for that ceiling above which the patient should not be. And one of them is the excessive sleepiness. If I identify excessively sleepiness, you can be sure that one of the things I'll be considering uh, will be decreasing the uh, dopamine agonist. Thank you. Uh, a question, um, uh, Dr. Vodinovich, which is, I think, a, a useful question to raise is, how much uh, sleep should people aim for? Uh, what's really possible in Parkinson's disease? I think it's an interesting question in some ways, whether or not you can have a kind of realistic uh, goal or whether you have to just sort of accept that these sleep challenges are going to be inevitable? Uh, that's an excellent question. In general, we don't know what is really the amount of sleep that we would consider correct amount or healthy amount of sleep. But several studies that can be done in general population, this is not specific to Parkinson's disease or any other disease. These are large studies that are done on a population scale basis have determined that mortality and morbidity really increases if individuals have less than six, seven hours of sleep and more than nine hours of sleep. So I would say that we should probably shoot for that range of anywhere between six and eight hours of sleep. Um, um, if possible, obviously, these are studies in a healthy individuals and may not be doable to achieve uh, in, in a patients who may have Parkinson's disease, but that's the, that's the number that I like to quote and keep in my mind. Anywhere between six and eight hours of sleep would be great. Great, thank you. Um, let's talk a little bit about, about um, some of the interesting research uh, that's going on. And Dr. Vodenovich, I'm gonna stay with you for a moment on this because I know it's a particular interest of, of yours and it has to do with some of the work and research that you have done in, in the area of uh, circadian rhythms and, and the way in which um, the role of, of light um, may really play. Describe some of the work that's going on with light therapy and the ways in which we can perhaps help regulate the, the rhythms of, of one's body and the way in which uh, sleep occurs. Um, um, thank you. Um, our group has been trying to develop some non-pharmacological means of improving sleep and alertness in patients with Parkinson's disease. And one of the focuses of our group is how to use supplemental light exposure or light therapy um, in order to improve sleep and alertness in Parkinson's patients. We have recently reported our trials where we had a success of improving both sleep continuity as well as daytime alertness by exposing patients twice per day to a light box that actually emits very bright light. They would sit in front of that box for 30 to 60 minutes, and after the end of that study, they favorably reported the quality of their sleep as well as the degree of daytime sleepiness. This work is based on the premises that light is really um, something that synchronizes our internal timer or internal clock that really directs all our body rhythms, including our sleep-wake cycle. 
And um, we believe that that light by hitting the eye and then connecting through specific nerve pathways from the eye to the certain brain regions may entrain or synchronize our brain to to day and the night cycles and to light and dark cycles and therefore results in the improvements. And um, in our center, obviously, we continue to work on these studies and have a couple studies and trials that are ongoing. So I would welcome any interest and happy to answer any questions to any of the audience that they may have it. And if people are interested in participating in this research, it's there are various ongoing projects. They can find that if they go to our Fox Trial Finder uh, website, for example, if they're interested in participating in this research. Of course, we have partnered with Michael J. Fox. They have a great, great tool, Fox Trial Finder, and um, we are also posted on clinicaltrials.gov website. And uh, all information is available for anyone to view and, and act upon. And we see also on our slide here some other studies that are going on, including a new drug to treat excessive daytime uh, sleepiness and other to perhaps adjust uh, the sleep-wait cycle. Uh, you can find out about these research uh, possibilities and, and decide whether or not you'd like to participate by going to uh, our, our Fox Trial Finder uh, website. Um, uh, one other question before we have to wrap up uh, our, our uh, hour today. Here's that Fox Trial Finder website, by the way. Um, Dr. Singer, we've had a number of questions, and we'd be remiss if we didn't at least try to provide an answer about the question of medical marijuana. Um, any familiarity with what research is going on in that arena? Uh, I'm not aware of any uh, a study that have, uh, involves medical marijuana. It certainly... Uh, not something that has been uh, publicized that I know. Uh, certainly any trial that would involve medical marijuana that would be a, a well-done trial, properly done, would be more than welcome, as we do lack a lot of information with regards to uh, the use of uh, cannabinoids in, in, in uh, movement disorders and a variety of other neurological problems. Dr. Vidinovich, any, any other thoughts on that particular question? comes up so frequently. Um, it, it really does, you know, and I think, you know, that all I, can, all I can say that really much more stringent research is really needed when we are dealing with these cannabinoid compounds because with all of these rules and regulations and being available um, in, in, in abroad, you know, um, and even in the, in, in the States, you know, in almost all states, I, I think that um, um, a word of caution really should lead any of these discussion about the therapeutic promise, which really may, may be there, and there is a good science behind it. But I think that um, um, I would, I would uh, warn caution and uh, advocate for more research in this um, area of therapeutics. And Michael Sweet, let me offer an opportunity to you to have kind of a last word on our overall topic of today. We heard Dr. Budenovich earlier make the um, make the request that we all really take this seriously. That patients and their and their partners talk about these sleep issues with their movement disorder specialists because they are so central to overall good health and to really focus on determining what the specific problems are so that they can be treated in the in the most appropriate way. Um, wondered if you could offer perhaps a, a take home message um, from your own perspective as someone who has lived with these issues and lived with Parkinson's disease. What is it that you'd like people to be thinking about as as they go forward so that they can contend with these in the, in the most healthy way? I, my biggest 
message I'd have to anybody is, as far as your sleep goes, uh, that uh, to me, my my sleep and the ability to sleep is probably the most important aspect of treating my Parkinson's because if I'm not getting enough sleep at night, obviously I'm a wreck the next day. I'm struggling to stay awake and I'm not, I'm not productive. I'm not getting things done. So, uh, whatever I can do during the day, like today, I'll probably struggle a little bit, but I'll go to the gym. I'll exercise a little bit. I'll take my dog on a walk, uh, make sure I get little things done and try and get to bed a little bit earlier tonight than usual. Uh, I've played around and messed with it, but I do take Trazodone or Restoril. Um, I find that if I take that about an hour before I want to go to bed, that generally works in a good way. Uh, but again, I do, I can't stress enough for the sleep aspect of Parkinson's, how important it is if you are having problems, uh, see your neurologist, preferably your movement disorder specialist if you have one, because that doesn't just affect you. It affects, obviously, your spouse. It can affect your children if you have small children, or it, it just affects the entire family, and it becomes that you don't just have Parkinson's, your entire family does, because your entire family's having to deal with you not being able to sleep. So, Get get that under control as much as you can and as soon as you can. Michael, thank you. Thanks for that that message and stressing that I- importance. And uh, and I hope your day goes well. I like what you said also about you're going to get out there, get a little exercise, be engaged, do things, uh, and keep moving forward. I want to really thank you for your participation today. And also, uh, Dr. Alex Budinovich and, and Dr. Uh, Carlos Singer for their participation as well. We really appreciate it, as we do appreciate our audience for their uh, participation in our third Thursday webinar series. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today. I'm Dave Iverson. This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org.